Let's see. I think we're live. We're live. On my rider, I did request to be walked out to a specific song and to have red M&Ms in my dressing room, neither of which were provided. Hey, how you doing? I'm Steve Holland. Welcome to another one. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Being Freelance, supported by Free Agent, the online accounting software that puts you in control of your freelancer finances. To claim your one-month free trial, visit freeagent.com slash being freelance but yes how are you right now as i record this it is august 2019 summer holidays time here in the uk being freelance on its summer break it's got its feet up it's reading some romantic trash and flirting with other podcasts in a way that hopefully it won't remember come september but this right here is a bonus episode to tide you over to when season nine bursts into your ears think of it as like a a holiday postcard from me to you and in it i thought we'd share some of the awesome answers from the live q and a's that we've been doing over in the being freelance community maybe you've not joined us yet but so far this year we've had kelly dunning ross wintle dave smythe luann wise paul jarvis kate toon all joining us live in the group to answer questions from the community it's a lot of fun it's been really interesting if you're already in the group hopefully you've caught some if you haven't you can actually head to the video tab and then re-watch any of them and for that matter if you're not already in the community what are you waiting for bring some biscuits come join us each week i host the non-employee of the week awards where one special freelancer wins biscuit trophies for their efforts live in the group but more than that it's just such a good place to hang out and support each other and cheer each other on so much great advice in there so come and join us there's a link to the being freelance community at beingfreelance.com But yeah, this bonus episode of the podcast, different format to normal, is just taking some of the answers given by Paul Jarvis and Kate Toon. Paul was the first guest that we had and Kate was the most recent, so I thought I'd take those and share some, but not all, of their answers with you. So here they come. Enjoy. Is it best to market your services as you, a person, or as under your company? I don't think that there's always a right answer to everything. I do think, though, that nowadays, it's funny, when I started freelancing, it was the 90s, and most people didn't know, like, I don't even know if freelance was a term. I just worked for myself, and people didn't understand that there was, I wasn't at an agency, and they thought I didn't work, because I was at home all day on my computer, probably thought that I was playing games or something like that. But I, so I have had a business that's just me that I use the royal we in the writing, which is funny now. And then I switched using a company name uh, to using my name probably 10 years in. And I found that it just built a, a better connection with the people that I was that I was trying to work with. And it it made people and clients understand even huge clients like I've worked with some Fortune 100 companies and stuff. And it doesn't really matter. Like you don't have to pretend that you're bigger than you're not. And I think the value of using your own name is people getting to know you as a person and what your personality is and as well knowing that you're going to be the one doing the work. But then it also helps on the flip side of that. If you want to start, say, a podcast or speaking or things like that, they don't – people that run conferences don't book companies to speak. 
they put people to speak. So I think it depends on kind of what you're looking to do. But I've never seen a downside in using my own name as opposed to a company name. But I have seen it be difficult for some people who've always used a company name to break into places where they need to use their own name. So I've seen the flip side not work as well. How do you test the market for a course before committing to creating it in terms of pricing slash demand? Oh, that's such a good question. And I'm so glad you asked that, Dave, because my attitude is if you can't sell a webinar, you can't sell a course. If you can't sell a $27 course, you can't sell a $100 course. If you can't sell a $100 course, you can't sell a $2,000 course. So I think... I hate I hate the whole funnel approach. I started with a free Facebook group where people have to commit to giving me their email to join. That's it. Then I had a free course, which was no commitment whatsoever. Then I had a twenty-seven dollar offering. Then a ninety-seven dollar it's ninety-seven dollar offering, and then a two grand offering. This is a big leap, but by the time you've you sort of got people into the first things, they're, they're willing to go. So I think you need to – I think too many people jump into the course thing or even the live workshop thing. It's really hard to sell a live workshop because you're not only asking someone to be interested in what you're selling. You're asking them to turn up in a particular place on a particular day. Like what? Like who? What? Who does that? So um, I think you have to test it online first, see how many people you get. And what I did was I sold my course. So I have a, a, a I have several courses, but the big one is the SEO course. I sold it, and then I built it. So that was scary, but I sold what I intended to do. I got 19 people to sign up. It wasn't as expensive as it is now. Um, and then I built it week by week. And was it amazing? No, it was okay. But I've developed and developed and developed it. So I would not spend three months of my life building a course and then try and sell it. I would sell something first, small, then bigger, then bigger, then sell the course. And when people have bought it, then build it. There's nothing like having 19 people who've just paid a big lump of money for your course to make you build that course. So Louise says... I would love to know your thoughts on email marketing, email marketing for freelancers. What's the best way you've found to build your email list? It's a great question. I'm not a freelancer anymore, but I was a freelancer for 15 years. Uh, Using my email list, it's different. When I was a freelancer, I didn't need an email list of, of any massive size because I knew that I only had the bandwidth to work with maybe 20 businesses maximum a year. So I didn't need that big of an email list to, to serve them. Now that I sell things that are like $30 to a few hundred dollars, I, I actually need a much larger list. So you may not need a, a, to grow your list as large as you think you do, first of all. I think that's something to consider. And I would just think if the purpose of your list is to drum up freelance business, which the majority, I'm sorry, I'm guessing here, but that's the majority freelancers that I talk to, they're really just looking for a way to get in touch with people who are potentially interested in hiring them. In order to grow your list, you have to think of, okay, who's the right person for to be on my list? And then what can I give them? Right? Because if you if you, the writing above your sign up form is just sign up for my newsletter, nobody's gonna nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to sign up for another newsletter. But if you say, 
something like, and you can even kind of build it towards what I call honest scarcity. So if you're a freelancer, you only have a finite amount of time to work, right? You can only do a certain number of projects a month, say, Louise, or anybody. And so if you tell people, if you say, like, sign up for my list to find out when I will be available next, I typically have two spots available a month, then potential clients will be like, two spots, you say? I could be one of those two spots, right? And then you can use your list. And then you're only going to get people signing up for your list who are potentially interested in working with you, which is good. So even if you get two or three people signing up a month, that could be enough. Like it doesn't, your list, I think I had 60 people on my mailing list when I was doing freelance work and that was enough. And then you use the list to say, you just be honest about the amount of work you can do the next time it's available. Like say I have... I have two spots in the next month. I book spots based on having a conversation, signing a contract, and getting a down payment. Then it locks into my calendar, then that spot is yours. So in doing something like that, you're one, you're kind of honestly pressuring people to pull the trigger or not. You want them to, you want to have good clients, but you also want people to, sometimes people need to be pushed a tiny bit into making a decision. They don't want to be like, oh, I don't know, maybe I'll hire somebody this month. Uh, Maybe I'll hire somebody next month. But if you tell people like, hey, I've got two spots available and you actually honestly do have two spots or three spots or whatever the number is, then people can, then they're either like, okay, I want to do this, so I'm going to pull the trigger now. Or I have the budget for this, I'm going to pull the trigger now. I'm not going to wait. I'm not going to talk to five other freelancers who do the same thing. If I want to do the work, I want to hire Louise and I'm just going to pull the trigger. So that's pretty much like that's pretty much exactly how I used email marketing when I was a freelancer was basically that exact template. It's interesting right? because you um, you're a great writer. What would you say to people who aren't or don't feel like they have that ability to write something, but, you know, Yeah. So in in that method that I just shared, it's one sentence, first of all, right? Like I have this availability in this time. So it doesn't, you don't have to, like, I've never met a word count. I haven't wanted to smash through, but I'm not like most other people who aren't writers. I just like writing. But I also think that every, show me a freelancer who doesn't write several emails a day, right? Like every single freelancer, regardless of what you do, you are a writer, you are writing, you are communicating, all day, every day. So if you stop telling yourself, like, oh, I'm not a writer, so I can't write, which a lot of free, I did that as well, right? Like, if we stop telling ourselves these stories that we then believe, then we can start doing things that um, that make more sense and that ultimately help our business and help make money for our business. So you don't have to, re- you don't have to have a newsletter like mine where I write two or 3,000, sometimes 6,000 words a week um, in like a long form post. When I was a freelancer, it used to be like maybe two paragraphs. Like this is the work that I just launched. Here's like a success story from a previous client because I follow up with clients all the time and I have two spots available in two months and it's first come first serve based on a signed contract and a down payment. That's like maybe six sentences. You could probably send out six sentences a month. You probably write more than six sentences an hour. So I think you don't have to be a great writer. Like nobody said you have to be great. I don't even think I'm a great writer. You just have to write. And all of us spend most of our time in our inbox writing anyways. So it's the exact, we just have to get over ourselves because it's literally the exact same thing. 
Anna, I'm going to paraphrase this one. Forgive me, Anna. Uh, so Anna says, I was at a talk recently and the SEO speaker was talking about Google My Business. It struck me that this was mainly good for local businesses rather than people like me who work with anybody all over the world. Should I care about Google My Business? Yes, 1,000 billion percent, yes, you should. Because ah. even though we want to work with people all over the world, we all have to start somewhere. We have to be a fat, chubby fish in a slightly uneasily uncomfortable pond. So when I started out, there's a place in Sydney called Newtown, which is kind of cool. It's kind of like Camden or something. And that's where I was. So I started to try and rank for copywriter Newtown. And when I built up my ranking for that, then I kind of went, wow, Newtown's in kind of like West Sydney or like North London. So I'm going to try and rank for copywriter North London. And then I'm going to try and rank for London. And then I'm going to try and rank for England. And then I'm going to try and rank for the world. Um, so, yes, you should. But the reason as well that you should is that Google My Business is free real estate from Google. And Google loves anything Googly. So if you have a Google My Business page, what does it let you do? If you type in your name, it will generally pop. It's called the knowledge graph. It sits on the side of the search results. So you've got the organic results, and then you've got this little panel that's all about you with pictures of you and your opening hours and reviews and questions. It's free from Google. Why wouldn't you, you know? And the biggest thing, though, is if you have a Google My Business page, you get reviews. Now, if you Google Cape Toon Sydney right now, if you're watching, your, my knowledge graph should pop up and I have something like 230 five-star reviews. The person underneath me has five. I just did that. I meant that. Has five reviews. Who are you going to click? Who are you going to click? You're going to click the 200 person or the five person or the person with no reviews. So Google rewards Googleness. The more time you spend on Google or YouTube, which is owned by Google, the more time you interact with it. Google Plus just died, which is sad, but it was crap, so we don't care. But the more time you spend on Google and interacting with Google's platform, the more Google rewards you. Now, they will tell you that that's not true, that they are egalitarian, and they don't care, and it doesn't matter. But it's not true. Believe me, the more reviews you have, the better your Google My Business page in. These days you can publish content, products, offers, events, everything to your Google My Business page. Do it. Once a week, spend 15 minutes on your Google My Business page. Boom. Your ranking will improve. You'll get more conversions. And the people that are searching for you will just be like, wow, this person owns this real estate, like they really own the first page of Google. It's their website, it's their knowledge, then it's their LinkedIn, then it's their, and who would you want to work with? Somebody whose website is on page 72 or somebody who owns their brand name, owns their business name? I'd want to work with the person who owns it because I want that for my business, you know? Wow. What an answer. Sorry. Um, sorry. I'm, I'm no, it's a, don't say sorry. It's amazing. Um, but actually, right, so within your business, you have lots of different things. You, Yeah, your SEO, the copywriting, your actual, you know, Kate Toon brand as a person and, and everything that comes under that. So when it comes to Google My Business, do you have separate things for each of those or do you focus on Kate Toon and then put references to all of that? 
So I have, um, at the, at, at, I made foolish decisions. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. And so five years ago, I was like, people aren't going to like me. People aren't going to buy stuff because of me. So I'm going to create these separate brands that has a bit of distance from me so that I could maybe one day, I don't know, sell them or do something with them. So I have a Kate Tune Google My Business page. I have a Clever Copywriting My Business page. I don't have a Recipe My Business page, Recipe for SEO Success. Maybe one day I'll create it. I have seven websites, Steve. I have seven Twitter accounts, three Instagram accounts, two YouTube accounts, five Facebook accounts. Don't be Kate Toon. Don't do it. Uh, Always try and keep everything under one brand, one website. It's better. People understand. You know, you can have sub-brands. That's what I should have done. But it's a bit hard to roll it back once you've rolled it out. So don't don't follow what I did. Keep everything under one umbrella brand, and it's going to be a lot easier. Amazing. And I think, Kathy, that will answer your question as well. Um, yeah, there you go. She's already written, answered. Um, Dave says, so true. I was at a talk where Google My Business was chatted about. I already had a GMB page and refined some things after the talk. About a month later, my site has started turning up on page one of some general local terms. Really useful. Uh, Graham just got my 11th five-star review on my Google My Business page last week. Go, Graham! Um, Graham, I would say, and I would say to anybody, if there is one really big thing you can do for your business, set up your Google My Business page, fill it out as much as you can, commit to spending 15 minutes a week adding content to it. There's an app on your phone that will actually send you a reminder saying, hey, your post's about to expire. Add a new one. And get reviews. Don't get people to email your reviews. Don't get people to put reviews on Facebook or LinkedIn or True Local or whatever your yellow pages or whatever you have there. Every single person that you know tomorrow, just send them an email. This is best tip for tonight. Tomorrow, every client you've had for the last 10 months or a year, just say, hey, look, I'm really trying to work on my business, my branding. Do you have five minutes or three minutes to pop a review on Google My Business? Here's my link. I'd so appreciate it. And I tell you, most people will do it. And the best thing you can do is also go, hey, look, here's three reviews I've already got. If you, Because most people don't leave reviews because they don't have time or because they're worried that they can't write and they're going to sound like an idiot. So if you give them a template or an example, it makes their life so much easier and, and if you do that, I, I guarantee you'll get at least two reviews tomorrow. I honestly think it really works. It really does. I want to create a side project that I can build up into a revenue earner slowly, but having a hard time deciding what, brackets, I'm interested in all the things. <laughs> uh, have you any advice on choosing where to focus attention and your thoughts on specialising slash niching, niching down versus catering to a larger audience? Yeah, hmm. so I'm glad I'm talking to a brick because I can say niche, not niche. Just sound niche, just sounds weird. It's oh, like, no, we it's go like, for the niche. You go for the niche? Yeah. Oh, no. Oh. At least you use Celsius, not Fahrenheit. <laughs> if you tell me you use Fahrenheit, this call is over. <laughs> so he wants to create a side project, yes. but doesn't quite know how to, to, to focus from all the things. Yes. Um, so I, I, I guess I, w- I would start to – I always kind of like to put – and I, I don't think I covered this in the book. I probably should have. 
Um, I think it's good to start by thinking about the type of people you want to reach. Like start with audience. I think a lot of people, myself included, like I started with before I started making things for an audience, I started trying to figure out who the audience was and starting to reach them, starting to just like write content or make videos or do um, podcasts or audio, like do something to to build an audience first, because once you do that, they're going to tell you what they want from you. So I don't know how to build a product without having an audience for it because I would just be guessing at everything. I know how to build an audience and then listen to them, see what they want, see what they're struggling with, see what they, they like, why haven't you like, that's pretty much the, how I make every product or write any book ever is like, Paul, send me the link to your book on this. And it's like, I haven't written a book on that. And then like a hundred people say that and I'm like, "Mm, maybe I should write a book on that or teach a course on that or make a software product like that. So I think that the the product will come from the audience. Like it's, it's easier to make something based on demand than make something and go and look for demand. Like it's possible to do it that way. I think it's actually very difficult to do it that way. It is possible. But I think if you work on building an audience, like who are the type of people you want to reach? Like you get to, choose who your audience is. A lot of creators don't kind of consider that, but like you get to choose who your audience is. And in in choosing who your audience is, you write content or make content specifically for them and, and weed out the people who shouldn't be. It's just like I have a swear word in my welcome email on purpose because I don't like like four years later, I, I'll have like, well, I don't even swear that often. I like one swear in an email and somebody will get like super offended. So I'd rather end the relationship right away my my welcome email it seems like it's such a silly thing but it comes up far too often or it used to come up far too often another thing is i tell a ridiculously silly joke in my welcome email because i'm a ridiculously silly person as you've seen in this call with steve like that's just my personality so people like i and i have a lot of i think i even less like these are the contrarian views that i hold um, in that email, because I, I, I like, I really like having an audience of, well, one ridiculously good-looking and intelligent people, and two, <laughs> and two, I like people who aren't looking for just like the tips and tricks and hacks, but the people who are looking for like the, the deeper, the why, the like possibly contrarian stuff, and that's the audience that I actively really want to foster. That's the audience that I like. That's the audience that I like communicating with. That's the audience I like having conversations with. And then at, in building that audience, then I just have to listen. I just have to be like, what are y'all talking about? And then I can see like, okay, well, they want a, a course on the business of freelancing. So I'll make creative class. They want a course on MailChimp. So I'll make Chimp Essentials. They want privacy-focused website analytics, which is such a random request from people. But <laughs> I'll make Fathom for that. So I think it, it's... It makes more sense to me to to start with the audience and then build products by listening to that audience. Paul says, Kate, you got you seem to be doing lots of speaking. Do people come to you because you're famous or because you went to them? He's kind of asking, like, how how do you get speaking gigs? It seems to be the question. Yeah. You know how you get speaking gigs? You ask for them, you know? So uh the biggest thing for me this year was that I spoke at Yoast in Yoastcon in the Netherlands. Uh, Yoast is a big plugin for WordPress. It's, it's big. It's famous. It, it, it was 
they put up a thing for speakers and I pitched, you know, I pitched. I was like, I, I was so sure that I wouldn't get in that I didn't even proofread my pitch. And I'm a terrible speller, even though I'm a copywriter. But they picked me. Now, I'm going to be totally honest with you. They don't pay me. I paid for myself to go to the Netherlands. I paid for my hotel. I paid for my flight. Um, it wasn't cheap. You know, it was an expensive thing to do, but it was absolutely one of the best things I've ever done. Now, yes, I paid for that to go there, but I asked, and the number of tweets and followers and Facebook fans, the kudos, the clients, the everything was absolutely worth it. So that one I pitched for, I spoke in New York as well. I pitched for that one too. Um, these days in Australia, people ask me, I did 37 events last year, which was a lot. And many of them were not paid to do anything. And now people ask me and people, are, when I say, well, my fee is X, people will pay it. It took time though. So I had to turn up to the opening of an envelope. I had to kind of prostitute myself around a little bit and get the runs on the door. And also I wanted to get to the point where you could tell me to speak about anything and I could speak about it. Like there's no stress, no worry, no anxiety, no adrenaline, nothing. It's all good. So I broke myself of that Yellow journey. It was hard. So it's a combination of working for a long time and asking. Then you get the then you get a bit of it's not fame exactly, but people know who you are. But also like Steve, having a podcast, being on podcasts, being interviewed. All of that builds up to this. This is Steve's been doing this for years. I've been doing this. I'm 11 years in. I'm up to my armpits. You know, it's not like I turned up last week and got speaking gigs. It's taken years and years. So don't look at me and think, "Oh, look at her. She's all great." It's taken years. You know, and also, don't think speaking is the be all and end all. It's exhausting. It's cool, but it's exhausting, especially if you've got a family and kids and a real job. You know. I'm not Pat Flynn, I'm not Gary Vaynerchuk, I don't have a team of 20 people, I'm just me in my kitchen with my, with my dog. Uh, so, you know, I love it, but it's not the be-all and end-all. Stuart says, what do you think of the fact everyone in Caps Lock is doing a course these days? Sure, everybody's doing a course, but everybody also has a podcast, everybody's written a book. Like, whatever industry you're in, everybody does it because that's where you pay attention. Right. Like maybe everybody's a web designer if you're a web designer, because all you say it's just like when you buy a red car, it's like how do you, everybody has a red car? It's like this is just what you see because this is the bubble that you're in. So I don't think it's I don't think that um, it's a valid concern. I think that and this is actually in the book and I'm glad I put it in. I was curious one day because people, consumers in general, have the ability to basically buy like something from anybody, right? Like if they want to hire a freelance web designer, there's tons of them. If they want to read a business book, Amazon has literally thousands and thousands of them. If they want to buy a course, there's, like they said, a, a lot of courses. So I asked my audience, why do you buy from me? It just seems like such a weird question to ask, which is actually probably the most telling question that I've ever asked. And the answer that pretty much everybody gave, except for some smart Alex, because I'm sarcastic, so I attract sarcastic people to my audience. But the, the overwhelming majority of people said that they buy things from me because 
they like the way that I show up. They like the way that I write content. They like the way that I have like a sense of humor. They like the way that I share. And it's not just, it's not just, I'm not saying this is just like me and like I'm the best or anything. I'm just saying that like this, this, this happens for anybody that shares online. This happens for anybody that has a, a stance or a point of view on a subject matter. And so people like I'm not competing with other course makers. Like I, I teach a course on freelancing. There's tons of those. I'm not competing with other freelance course makers because if my audience wants to buy a course on freelancing and they value what I have to say because I communicate with them every week, then they're just going to buy it or not from me. Same with my book. There's so many books, so many, so many books. And they, people want to buy from me because they, they like the way they show up. They like something about my personality for some reason. They like the way that I write. They like the way that I tell stories. So I don't think it matters that there's everybody has a course because not everybody's going to want to buy everybody else's course. You need to show people that you're only just competing with yourself or maybe their pocketbooks for how much they can afford to, to buy. It's not a matter of like, oh, they could buy mine or somebody else's. It's like, make it a decision where it's just you. Even if you're a freelancer and you're thinking and, and you're, you're talking to potential clients, you don't want to be competing with Google for a client being like, oh, I, maybe I want to hire Sally, the web designer, but I could just Google web design and, and try to find somebody. You really just want to compete with yourself where you want to convince the other person that like, this is what I know. This is how I approach the work that I do. And and would you like to buy that? Is now the right time, basically, for you to buy this thing from me? And then it's just a matter of do I want to buy from Sally instead of like do I want to buy from the top result in Google for like Web Design Manchester, like something random like that, right? Yes. Um, I think also that probably speaks to Terry's question. Terry has asked. Do you have any advice on how to use our skills and knowledge to create courses ourselves? He asked that just before you answered that. Although, sure. um, I mean, that, that covers one part of that. But I think, I mean, another part could be that a topic might seem so overwhelming that you just don't start. Yeah, it's um, I think a lot of times, especially with products, like we want to make these massive things. We want to even for a creative class, I think I wanted to have like 30 or 35 lessons in the beginning. That was going to take me like half a year to make. So I picked seven and I'm like, this is this course will fall apart unless there's these like seven things. Right. And then I made the course and it was only seven instead of 30 something people still bought it. And then I listened to what they wanted in the course. And part of the email sequence after they bought the course was, what did you find the most valuable? And what did you think you would learn, but you didn't? And then I just started iterating. I started to make more lessons based on feedback, because then that was based on what people actually wanted instead of what I thought they wanted, which is slightly riskier. So I think if we're making products, we need to start with like, the the smallest version of it like maybe it's a, a course with a couple lessons maybe it's a book that's 15 20 pages instead of a 272 page book <laughs> there is a big wordpress community in the world yoast seo is probably the leading seo plugin for wordpress some people misunderstand its use do you think it's a useful to tool for non-techies or an unuseful one that you would wouldn't recommend if you use it. So I love that question. I, for non no, I totally get what to he's yeah, asking. Okay. I totally get what he's asking. 
So this is a conversation I actually had with Yoast at Yoastcon. And I was like, you know, that bloody traffic light system that you have drives people up the wall because everyone goes for the green light and sometimes really great copy really great blog posts, they will not get the green light. So I don't get the green light on most of what I write. But because I understand SEO copywriting and I understand how it works, I don't need a tool to tell me that I know what I'm doing. But if you're uninitiated, if you're brand new, you're going to rely on that. And if you don't get the green light, you're like, I'm doomed. Yoast said himself, and I love this, he's a cool guy. He's very sarcastic and funny. But he's like, you know, I regret I regret the traffic lights. I regret it. Like the number of people that come to us and say, go and get it done with the green light and blah, blah, blah. And they're not getting what we're saying. They're not getting how we're doing it. The paid version is more subtle, but, you know, we don't want to pay for shit. Um, the paid version is better at kind of understanding the content, but a tool is just a tool. And this is my problem with SEO in general. Somebody will be like, oh, you're worried about your SEO? Try this tool. A tool is just a tool. It's not a human. And, you know, I, I speak a lot with John Mueller, who's kind of like the mouth of Google, like the mouth of Sauron from the Lord of the Rings. He's the mouth of Google. And he says, you know, you're, you're all taking it too seriously. You're all worrying about these, you know, percentages of keyword density and this, this amount of speed and this amount of responsiveness. Honestly, humans lead Google. If we see humans enjoying your content, if we see humans interacting and spending time on your site, if we see humans clicking on your result more than other people's, that's what's going to lead us. Have a good site. Write content that people like. Be engaging. Build a brand. Be personable. Be friendly. Sell in a non-overly aggressive way. And Google will follow. I think we all overthink it way too much and try and try and make metrics and, and tools and things that are going to serve us. But if humans like it, then Google will like it too. And a classic example of this, I'll give you two. So people obsess about, like, you know, speed. Speed. Oh, what, what's the exact speed that Google wants? There's not an exact speed. How long will you wait for content to load? How long will you wait on your mobile phone for a page to appear? How long does it take you to go, I'm going to click something else, you know? Do you get frustrated if you click on a result that's supposedly about piglet jumpers and you get there and there's not a mention of piglet jumpers? So 95% of SEO and UX and usability and everything is just common bloody sense, if you ask me. Are there any red flags for us as freelancers if our company is growing too much? Yeah, I'm, the number one would be is if you're forsaking profit now in the hopes of profit at scale or volume, if you're saying that it's okay that we're not profitable right now because if we grow by 10 or 20x, then we'll probably be profitable to them. That can def that can work out, but it's super risky. It's not a risk that I'd be willing to take in my own business. I think the other that's like such an easy pragmatic one. Um, the other one would be is is this is this rapid growth affecting how I like to spend my day, right? Like for me, it all, like work is like when the nuts and bolts of work is what you do all day. So for myself, like when I was freelancing, if I was booked months in advance, 
I could have said like, oh, I'm just going to hire like a designer, a developer, a project manager, an office assist. I don't, I don't know people in businesses and in, in like offices, but like hire all of these people, have an office and stuff. Then I would be effectively promoting myself out of the job that I like. I'd be promoting myself out of being able to sit and design all day into having to sit and manage other designers all day. Right. So I think if we think about just those two things, it, it becomes really easy to kind of steer the ship and like this is a, an area where growth does make sense or this is an area that maybe affects um, my profitability because size doesn't always mean more profitable. Size a lot of times means less profitable, but profitable at volume or scale. And then the other one, like I said, is how you want to spend your day. If you like the way you spend your day, then then protect that. Don't forsake opportunities for the way you want to spend your day because the opportunities are really just obligations or debts that have a fancy bow. So they seem like they're really nice. But every opportunity has an associated maintenance cost or, or, or obligation attached to it. Such a good answer. There we go. How good were they? Thank you so much to Paul Jarvis and to Kate Toon and to those freelancers in the community that gave their questions as well. You can watch the replays, don't forget, with all of the A's to the Q's that they gave in the Being Freelance community along with the other ones that I mentioned. Go to the videos tab and if you're not in the community, come join us. Beingfreelance.com, click on community and then you can join us right there. Okay, I'm out of here. I'm off to find yet another ice cream, but I will speak to you soon in September. And in the meantime, all the best being freelance. <laughs>